it is really wild just how like how everyone's circumstance affects like how we're able to live our which is always true but feels extra heightened right now is sort mm-hmm. of I was just talking to a friend yesterday about you know as like the economy starts to open back up which it will in whatever way that looks like it will yeah. start to happen probably soon um like that's not going to be true for people who are you know that doesn't make anyone who's vulnerable to this illness like more likely to leave just be, mm. you know it just becomes yeah. back to sort of this idea of like oh if you are vulnerable then protect yourself like we'll no longer make an effort to protect you so if you're worried about you know getting sick then stay home and that I think that transition is going to be really really sad and really hard um to sort of watch so many people continue to be really scared and really sort of sheltered in place Hello and welcome to the EduPunks podcast. This is your host, Craig Biderman, bringing you another conversation with an everyday educator and daily disruptor in the world that we live in. Uh, this week, I'm talking to my friend Kim Warnick from the organization Calling All Crows. Calling All Crows is a sexual assault prevention organization as well as uh, an organization that's taken on campaigns like gun violence prevention, refugee support, marriage equality, hunger initiatives. Uh, and they do a lot of work in venues, uh, in concert spaces, uh, and anywhere where live music is being made and shared with the world. They do a lot with sexual assault prevention at the gig, as well as just trying to spread overall uh, good information uh, with with folks uh, at the gig. And you're going to get to hear a whole lot more from Kim throughout this episode about the work that Calling All Crows does and the work that she does in general. So that's going to be a great conversation and I hope you really enjoy it. This episode, you also get to hear a bunch of tunes from the new VAR record. That is V-A-R, VAR. Uh, VAR is a new band on the Spartan Records label. Our friends at Spartan Records up there in Seattle. Uh, the album is called The Never Ending Year. It is a really good album. It came out just this last Friday uh, through Spartan Records. So if you like what you hear, please go over to SpartanRecords.com and get yourself a vinyl copy. They are running low, so if they are out by the time you get here, make sure that you can stream it or even reach out to them and let them know that you want one of the records and maybe they'll do a repressing of it. I know that one of the, the variants sold out pretty quick and the second variant uh, is definitely uh, on its way out as well so just make sure that you are on your way to get a copy of it because it's a really good record and I think you'll like it and hopefully if you do like what you hear throughout this episode you will go like you will go buy it you will go stream it and support the band support the labels that's what we're doing right now during the quarantine we're supporting all the bands and all the labels right now because that's all we really can do because the gigs are canceled Uh, but yeah other than that, we are part of the Connect EDU network. Go to connectedu.network to listen to a bunch of great education-based podcasts and read a bunch of content that we create for you week after week after week, day after day after day. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of that network, and I really hope that you find some good resources there for yourself or for your colleagues or for your students and whatnot. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Kim Warnick.
So I'm talking with my friend uh, Kim Warnick. How are you uh, this afternoon? I am doing all right. You know, I'm I am not thriving. I don't think anyone's thriving. No, but I'm... I wouldn't use that word. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I'm doing my best. Yeah, I feel like I'm in that boat too. I just had a conversation with a friend about um, how FOMO doesn't really exist right now. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> no one's really missing out on anything right now. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> and I know like for, for gig hoppers like us, people who go to the gig, yeah. like it's, this is hard. <laughs> yeah. It's real weird. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to like enjoy the, the mountains of live streaming content that exists on the internet, but it's not the same as, no. uh, it's not, it's not the same, but. It feels cool. kind of intimate. Sure. But it's also like, I miss like being around a bunch of people doing it and because yeah. like there's so much about a live show that um, you just like we all came here for the same reason this is so great yeah. <laughs> yeah the community of it I don't need everything to be so intimate you know sometimes yeah sometimes I just want some community exactly yeah um, so Kim can you tell folks a little bit about who you are what you do and where you come from and yeah. where you are now or as much you want to tell <laughs> Yeah, so I am, I'm in my apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and I work for an organization called Calling All Crows. So uh, we're a nonprofit that works mostly in the music industry. Uh, we were founded by a musician and a tour manager about 12 years ago, uh, really with the idea of sort of channeling this power of live music, uh, which we're missing so much, but channeling mm -hmm. that power of live music and those, you know, having so many people gathered together over that same, something so positive. And, and putting that towards community change. And so we focus primarily on issues affecting women, which is literally everything, it's half the population. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, so, but we try to bring sort of this gender lens to the issues that we are facing. So, you know, when we're working right now, we have a campaign around mass incarceration and we're really looking at how is that, you know, impacting both women who are incarcerated, but also all of the sort of women who are left behind when their, their loved ones are um, locked up. And so we bring, um, yeah, this gender lens to all the work that we do. And what brings me here today is uh, one of our major campaigns, which is called Here for the Music. So we're working on preventing sexual violence at shows and festivals. So it's really, um, it's our only campaign that's looked inward to the music industry. Normally, uh, you know, we're saying more like, hey, what's going on, on in our communities and in our world and how can we help support these frontline organizations doing amazing work. Um, but with sexual violence, you know, we saw it happening right at shows, right at festivals and right in these places that we love so much. And we're really looking around um, to see, you know, who's working on this? How can we be driving more attention to it? And, and there was a pretty big gap. There wasn't really anyone specifically focused on um, these large scale gatherings. Um, and the organizations, there are amazing organizations working on preventing and responding to sexual violence, but they're so tapped already. You know, they're so like, you know, the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center here in Boston is an amazing organization, but they can't like also tackle the entire music industry while trying to support and serve all the survivors that they work with, you know. So, um, so we launched this campaign um, here for the music to, to work on that specifically. And my, and my background is in prevention and response. So I've done... Uh, rape crisis counseling and um, done quite a bit of like teaching and training around this work. So it was nice to be able to bring that. I, I'd mostly done it in a volunteer context for about a decade now. It was nice to be able to bring that sort of into my professional world um, and into the music world uh, that I love so much. Yeah. What got you into wanting to do that sort of work? Was it during college or before then? Or what, what would you say got you into doing that sort of work? Yeah, so in college, so when I was 18, I uh, worked and or volunteered at this sort of, um, it's called Peer Health Exchange. So it was like a health teaching program where college students would teach uh, sort of near peers, so high school students in Boston public schools, um, different health topics and health workshops. And mine was around rape and sexual violence was the one that I was drawn to. Um, and I think, you know, it was one of those things where I, I think I ranked like five different workshops and that was one of them. I couldn't tell you what the other ones were anymore. Um, and it was something that I sort of stumbled into when I was uh, 18 and, um, and just really loved being able to talk about that with high schoolers. Uh, it was, I never had health education. Uh, I went to like 
Catholic school and then private school. And so I had to like sign an abstinent pledge to go to math class in, in middle school. Whoa. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Um, so that was Just my to go to math class? <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. I don't know what that was about. I, I also like side note, I, I refused to sign it, but not even in this like rebellious way. Like that makes me sound cooler than I was as a middle schooler. I was just like so horrified to talk to my math teacher about sex that I was like, no, I don't want to sign it. And they sent me to the principal's office. And I was oh, like, no. I just had to sit there and, and then like explain why it was there, which was like, I don't want to sign a paper saying I won't have sex until marriage uh, to go to math class. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so that was my health education and figured I should pay something better than that forward. Um, and, and so, yeah, that was really where it started for me. And, and I just really loved being able to talk about challenging topics in a preventative way, mm-hmm. right, with people and really be able to dig into that. Um, and then also while I was a, in college, I um, became a crisis counselor or sort of a peer counselor. And um, that was, you know, because I used one of those services and found it really amazing and helpful to have sort of this like anonymous peer that wasn't formal therapy that you could just sort of go to in a hard moment. and. Um, and just really wanted to be able to be a part of that and offer that to other students in a place where like mental health wasn't always valued or talked about. And it was often, you know, we were literally the, the peer counseling group was literally in a basement, right? Like it just like felt mm-hmm. really appropriate that I was like, Oh, this is, this is how we feel about these things. Yep. This is where you're put. <laughs> yeah. Like no windows, uh, go, go down this dark staircase to get here. Um, and, and so that was where my um, sort of the more response side of the work started for me was a year later. Um, yeah, and that was, so I was drawn to it, but it was uh, also that, uh, you know, I am a survivor of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was like super conscious. I wasn't thinking about that when I was 18, being like, this is the reason I'm doing this. But as I continued the work, that felt really clear that mm-hmm. it just felt like, oh, I feel really connected to this and uh, don't want anyone else, you know, to have to to go through what I experienced. And I think that's a really big driver for a lot of people in this work. I don't, I don't think being a survivor makes you an expert or makes you required to need to work on sexual mm-hmm. violence at all. Um, but I have found in this work that a lot of survivors are drawn to it and really want to be a part of this movement. Yeah, it's, yeah that's what I've also found in like the work that we've done with Art of Survival is the folks that um, we get connected to um our organization are just honestly wanting to tell their story and like a lot of times they never even thought that they could and so um many of many folks do it anonymously but it's generally just getting it out there and that's one of the things that i found like super powerful is just like there is like a lot of healing in that community there Um, and a lot of times it's not even something that people are like consciously looking for like a community or anything like that it's more of like I just want to do my part Mm -hmm. and I feel like there's um, and there is no obligation to do that like you said so the folks that are willing to come forward and do that sort of work is like so like powerful and um, it's something that I've I've been like really um, thankful to be able to do for like the last four years that we've had our organization Um, and I know that it can be like such a hard topic for folks to get into. Um, And so when I interact with other folks who are wanting to do this work, I know that (laughs) it's not easy. And so um, I know that even, especially for someone who is a survivor, like this stuff is like, like to your core to some degree, I imagine. And so um, as someone who's just just um, someone who's just an ally, I guess, in in some regard, um, for me, the real power comes in just knowing how much healing is possible. Mm -hmm. And so especially in the scene where I know that there's a lot of folks who, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this more, but I'll probably just lead this into, um, when I was going to shows growing up, like I was aware that people were like being creepy or um, being inappropriately touched or crowd surfers were getting taken advantage of, or people in the pit were getting taken advantage of. But like, I never really knew how to speak up. I didn't really have a voice yet. And I didn't really know that like I could intervene. And so like when it comes to like being in the scene itself, where do you see, 
what were some of your early experiences if you're willing to talk to them about seeing something similar and because like i know that you go to gigs how was this something that was like an early um indicator of like the work that you wanted to do as well or this is just kind of like the two came together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a question in there somewhere. <laughs> there is. I found it. I found it. Um, yeah, I mean, going to gigs growing up, I I think I was somewhat aware of it and not super tuned into it. So I think it's it's something sort of interestingly for me, um, uh, you know, like my sort of first experience with sexual violence was when I was 16. Around when I was also going, but it was not gig related. Um, but I think it actually like made me sort of tap out of it in an in interesting way for a year. So I was just so like out to that part of the world that I wasn't noticing it that much around uh, around me at shows, and at, um, or I wasn't really noticing it. And I think um, I try to always remind myself of that when um, uh, is that some people. Sorry, I'm gonna go into Ethernet because I'm losing signal um so so with this work that i think i try to hold that in my brain that everyone's coming at it from a different experience because i think sometimes i get frustrated when people are unaware of what's going on with like around them mm -hmm. uh and i try to remember like oh that came from a really specific place for me and that might be true for other people um but anyway so i so i wasn't super like tuned into it and and when i look back i was oh my gosh it was all around me and i just wasn't um, it's not that I hadn't found my voice. It's genuinely that I was just so like removed from it that I wasn't um, wasn't tuned into it and wasn't aware of it. Uh, and and so when I was in college and starting to be more sort of an activist around these issues and more tuned back into it, I couldn't unsee it. You know, I would go to a gig and see it all around me. Um, and I I didn't really know how to talk about it, especially I think like to strangers at a show. Like I'm a like, I'm not that, like, like, I don't take up that much space at a show. And um, I think I always, you know, was just sort of like, really tried to figure out, you know, something that felt dangerous or felt creepy nearby me. The last thing I wanted to do was confront it, right? Like, I wanted to uh, disappear or move away to another part of the room because it felt like a threat to me, even if it, it wasn't directly at that moment. Um, and, and so I definitely like grew up around that was sort of being like, Oh, there's just a threat at shows that's lingering there. And it's just sort of always present. Um, and, and I, it's so fun. I remember using you, like I used to really like seated shows which mm -hmm. is very strange because I don't actually like the energy of that is so weird to go mm -hmm. to like a place where you have a seat. But I realized it was like, Oh, because I get like my own personal space. Like it is yeah. granted to me. <laughs> it's like, and I can just turn off the part of my brain that's like scanning my environment. For you that. don't have to worry about getting there at a certain time because you're yeah, there. Too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You also don't have to like fight the crowd. Um, yeah. But I, I can like, you know, I enjoyed a show in a different way when I was like, Oh, this is my space and no one's going to try to invade it. And I don't have to, um, I don't have to worry in that same way. And I'm um, really realizing like, oh, that's, it's not just that I'm getting like old and tired. <laughs> it's that, um, you know, it's not about needing to have a seat during a show. It's about having, you know, my own personal bubble. So it's, it's definitely there um, and really present. Uh, but what brought it, I guess, together for Calling All Crows was we did have sort of um, an incident within our own volunteer community that was, you know, was, um, and we have permission to talk about this in vague ways, um, but you know it was brought up uh, to to us, and it was you know this person sort of said like, hey, this happened a few years ago, and I didn't know how to talk about it then or bring it up, but you know this this was done to me at a show, and um, I think that for us really um, nailed at home was like it's not just happening at shows; it's happening to our own volunteers at shows um, who are out there like talking to people about community change and maybe asking someone to donate or sign a petition and um, that like immediacy of that of being like oh wow like we're putting our own people at risk when we when we ask people to volunteer at a show just felt so horrible um, and and like we had this responsibility to do more for our own volunteers but also just for every every person who's at a show um, mm -hmm. so that was what really drove us towards this campaign yeah I feel like well, I feel like what's really wonderful about that work is there is um, there's a lot of space to to do a lot of good in um, 
an environment and environments that not necessarily you're going to hit everyone, but there are going to be the people who come by and like, it's going to hit them like really powerfully. And having been at a lot of gigs where we've tabled and worked at, um, and being like a, a white male dude, I've never really even thought about the fact that like I could be at risk or like even because I'm generally my partner or I, my partner is a very small <laughs> femme person. Uh, I'm generally always there. Um, and so like there's always like that feeling of somewhat safety there. And like I'm not saying that men aren't like uh, assaulted at all, but like I've never really even thought about the fact that like, my body self could be at um, in danger. And so like, cause I always think of it being somewhat transactional mm -hmm. uh, as you would really like at any merch table. Yeah. Um, it's, it's generally transactional to where like, you don't, we don't interact across the state. Like we, we don't, there's no reason to. Yeah. And so like that blows me away to hear that something like that would have, would have happened. Um, especially doing the work that like you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. Cause I, I similarly hadn't thought about it that much. And now that I think about it, it, it feels so obvious that if you sort of think about the risk factors, it's sort of, um, yes, it's somewhat transactional, but sort of like as a volunteer, you have very little power, right? Like you're sort of asking for something from someone else. Um, but you don't have, you know, there's not, there, you don't have as much to offer in return. Um, and you have the least amount of, you know, you're not even working like a low wage employee also is in a really vulnerable position, but a volunteer is even like one step lower in some ways. Um, I mean, they're not working there for, for wages. So you don't have to stay in the same way, but I think a lot of volunteers feel really personally motivated and obligated to stay through discomfort for the greater mission. Right. And I think so part of our work has been to like really combat that idea of being yeah. like, she is way more important. Like if you are feeling uncomfortable, like you do whatever you need to do to get out of that, but like, do not worry about like whatever you're tabling for that night. Like it's just not as important as you, but um, yeah, that there's um, that reality for, for people who are volunteering, attending, working a gig. And just, we, we focus a lot actually on the, the people who are working at shows. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we're, we're definitely thinking about all of the gig goers and, it, you know, it's happening or like violence is, is being done in crowds. Uh, a lot of it is happening or, you know, being done to people who work. Um, so it's, it's backstage or it's at the bar at the end of the night, or, you know, it's in these places where there's these even larger power differentials than there might be between two fans. Um, you know, you're having a much bigger differential between say a headliner and, um, you know, someone who's working sound for the venue. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a pretty big, um, pretty big power gap there. And especially with touring crews who are, you know, moving in and out of a space for one day, um, the con you know, they don't have to see these people again. And the consequences are really changed, particularly yeah. with touring. So those dynamics of, um, of gigs, as we started to get into them, felt you know, it's just such an obvious place that needed this kind of work because just every risk factor is there for, for violence. Well, and even like, I know a lot of stories about even bands and tour packages that um, like bands will drop off or not even be on some tours because of potential harm or even like mm -hmm. potential hi like history of like predators or yeah. whatnot. Or, um, but you've, you've all done work with a lot of bands too as well, right? Mm -hmm. What does that process look like when you actually like go do trainings and work with them? Yeah, so we'll work with a band and um, we go in and so we do these trainings they are active bystander training. So really mm -hmm. thinking about how do you identify harmful behavior? Um, how do you, um, what are different strategies to intervene safely, like safely for you, but also for all the people involved um, and, and effectively, and then like a chance to practice it. I think sometimes we forget that it's a skill. Like it's not just mm -hmm. about finding your own confidence, but it's also like, it, it's a skill and you just need practice at it. So we do these trainings um, and one of the groups we do them with are artists and their, their camps, their touring crew. Uh, and 
I, those are some of my favorite trainings to do. Um, like not because they're famous. I don't really care about that, but um, they're also not that famous. Usually <laughs> the like ones who want to work with us are lower, but it's um, famous to us. Famous to <laughs> us. Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, it's this, uh, this idea that, um, you know, I think they think of themselves as a family. You'll often hear people sort of talk about their tour family. And, um, and I think when you start sort of bringing in, the dynamic, the dynamic, dynamic, like, yes, there's a lot of care and love there, but there's also, um, people don't always think about the responsibility that that requires too, and the fact that it is still a work site. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so those pieces, I think, um, really being able to do some education around that and really just asking people to think about their own behavior in addition to like the, the way that they can go in and be a positive influence. So, um, it's both like, you know, the, the number one complaint, like just sort of anecdotally that we get is touring crew harassing local venue staff, hmm. like far and away the number one complaint that we hear. And, and so being able to say that to touring crew members <laughs> is really powerful. And in a way that's not accusatory and is asking them to be like, Hey, you know, look out for each other's behavior. If you see someone um, treating, you know, touring as like a dating buffet or like a casual sex buffet, you really need to like talk to them about it because those people are at work. Like they're, um, yes, you occasionally might have something reciprocated, but like do it after the show. But if someone is like laughing back or flirting with you, like you need to consider that it might just be that they're trying to do their job because you're the customer. Yeah. Um, and that just like, I've seen that connect for so many people who um, it's one of those things where I was like, I don't understand how you didn't know that. And yeah, then yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I get, I get like how you didn't know that because <laughs> you're like 20 years old and no one's ever t talked to you about it before. And I yeah. think it's, it's a real empathy builder for um, why, why some people don't, don't understand the power that they hold mm -hmm. because they might feel like, you know, an underpaid like merch seller, which probably they are, but that doesn't like discount the other power that they hold over people. So I think that's been really powerful is that sort of education about their own behavior. Um, but also, you know, I think it becomes something where we're asking them to look out for each other and for the fans who they're bringing to a show. And I think that part um, we've seen, like in action of, you know, crew members really paying attention to the crowd and, and really trying to tune into whether anything's going down in the crowd and just knowing that they have access to, to security quite quickly and that security is going to listen differently to the band uh, or the tour manager than they might listen to a fan in the crowd. And so if, if they can be the voice who says, hey, there's a problem, um, it's going to be taken at a different sort of level than if someone else who's maybe drunk or just like young or old you know sometimes yeah. they're like who who would harass you you know which is just like ridiculous but that that um sort of like making them understand their power basically is has been really cool And I think that like something that we've experienced a lot and like we've like me bands have asked us to come table and whatnot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people in the scene that are really like really taking this seriously now, yeah, like yeah. way more than like five years ago even. Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, like, cause we'll send materials on the road with like a couple bands, hell, Max Seal, who I'm wearing their <laughs> shirt for, um, we'll send, we'll send materials with them and like, we'll get emails from folks and be like, I saw this thing. I got the zine from Max Seal's merch table and like, I want to reach out and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it's really powerful to like, know that those things are getting spread far and wide. And the fact that people are taking this a lot more seriously in the, in the scene specifically. And, um, I'm sure that's something that you're seeing. Yeah. Um, but what, what are some of the like more impactful, like, um, I don't know, outreach strategies that some bands are asking for, or even like that have brought up to you, or what are some of those uh, strategies that you think are working right now um, specifically in the scene? Yeah, I guess I would, I would highlight two things. So one is when bands involve their fans with it, right? So having um, materials on tour with them, speaking about it from stage, talking about it over their socials, really trying to um, involve their fans in that, whether it's offering trainings or just like making, you know, saying it over and over again, that they want that behavior not anywhere near their show and that they mm-hmm. want to hear about it if if that is being done in the space that they're like helping to bring together. So I think that's a really powerful part of it. Um, It won't stop this behavior altogether, but it might decrease it. And Mm -hmm. it definitely will open the door for people to ask for help. Um, I think that's one of the things we've seen with the artists that we've worked with. And I now like prepare artists for that, like pretty rigorously of like, if you start working on this, you're going to start hearing stories from your fans and like, you just need to be ready for that. Mm -hmm. And you need a little bit of training on how to respond to that. Um, so (laughs) that you don't like, um, upset someone even more, re-traumatize someone who's disclosing maybe for the first time. Yeah. Um, That's definitely something that we've like worked with, like, cause the bands that we work with are like first or second build on tours. And so like, they're still pretty young people Mm -hmm. in general. And so like, they only know so much. And like, I've been doing bystander work for probably a decade as well. And yeah. so, um, and I learned it in a bar where I was a bartender <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's a weirdly transactional kind of role, yeah. where, which I can, that's a whole other conversation. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> a whole other thing. But like that, that teaching point is like important because like it is a lot of the work that my partner and I do in general. And so like yeah. being able to like educate the members of the bands and like, this is how, if someone's disclosing to you respond in this way. Um, But yeah, that's, yeah. Just to affirm that work. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a big one. And I think it's really, I, I love that part of the work probably more than any other part, which I'm about to say the other thing that's effective, but I just think Mm -hmm. the, the like community and the connection between like performer and fan and just, and of all of the people who are going there together, I, I just think it's, really powerful to be able to like say out loud that not everything about like the scene is good and that we can like be there for each other when it's bad. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really powerful rather than just like throwing up our arms and walking away or asking people to like shut up about it and not ruin the good parts of the scene. Um, So I think that's really powerful. Um, The other thing that we've been doing with artists is um, so we'll do trainings for venues or for festivals and work sort of with the, the, the sort of infrastructure, I guess, of the music industry. Um, so both on training their staff, um, but also on creating policies around harassment and sort of both like, what is the public facing like short version of a policy, but then what is the protocol that you're training your mm. staff on? On Like if this is reported or someone witnesses it, what do you actually do? Who do you call in? Who has the right training, right? Like those pieces that like just don't exist at most venues. Um, and, and so one of the ways we've been really pushing that is with artists, we'll have them add something to their tour rider that asks every venue they go to what their, their harassment policy and protocol is. Mm. Um, and we have a couple other things that we like often suggest that sort of tie into um, forms of violence. So, you know, we have things like asking about um, like all gender restrooms and like what, like what are the things that you're doing to like care about vulnerable people in that you're bringing into this venue and making sure that they have safety um, that like many other people are sort of, we just like assume are afforded that safety and, and overwhelmingly, I mean, I think I was just looking back at some of the data we've had um, artists sort of ask for policies and, and ask for description of protocols and only two venues came back with them 
and one of them we helped write. So they get, really? they get, they credit, they still get credit for being able to like do it, but we had like helped them make it on a previous tour, like with a different oh. artist. They're like, oh yeah, someone asked us this before. And I was like, yeah, that was us. Um, <laughs> and, and so like one, one venue already had this and we're working with venues of lots of different sizes um, and lots of different, you know, levels of like uh, live nation versus like an independent local venue, right? Like mm -hmm. that, like so some of them are very well resourced and absolutely could have this if they decided it was important enough to have. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's been an effective part of working with artists is asking them to be part of building that accountability into the venues and the, the festivals and saying like, hey, how are you thinking about this and what are you doing to protect the fans we're bringing into your space? Because uh, we, don't, we don't want you know, we, we care about their safety and we want them, we want to make sure that if something is done to someone that it will be handled appropriately. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like I'm seeing like, at, like the Sinclair in town, like does a really good job of this work. Yep. Um, specifically, like, especially with like their bathroom policy, like it's mm -hmm. very clear, like don't ask, don't be a jerk. Don't ask questions. Yep. Like if you are using this space or anyone's using this space, it's none of your business. Yep. Um, and I know that when um, the Wonder Years came through recently, they had a whole, like, the, that group is, like, they're on the up and up with a lot of yeah. the policies and work that they're trying to do with their team, with the bands they bring out and everything. And so um, it's just really fascinating to see the level to which folks are taking this level of accountability um, with the venues themselves as well. Yeah. Um, I know that we had that chaos with a couple venues in town too. So like, I know that it's, it's hard because yeah. if the people at the working at the venues aren't taking this seriously, then like people aren't going to go to your venue yeah. and like, well, you would hope that people don't go to the venue because you want safety. So like, that's something that I, I feel is almost so like working with the bands is huge, mm -hmm. important. The, the, the carnival, the traveling carnival of being in a band, yeah. uh, but like working at the venue level where it is like so stationary and has um, like a, like when I go to a gig, I know how many people I'm going to know at the gig basically. Yeah. And so like for those people who are there gig in and gig out, like it is important for those people to feel safe every single time. So I feel like that is like some of the most, probably the more important work to some degree. Yeah. So like to hear that not a lot of band, not a lot of venues are like thinking about this stuff yet. That might be the next, like, yeah, <laughs> it really is. Well, and it's been cool. So we've been um, doing. So we launched this campaign in 2017, and um, one of the places with that in mind of like really trying to push into venues and festivals because I I agree with you. I think it's like they like bands need to be talking about it and pushing it and like thinking about their own behavior um but yeah venues and festivals really need to to be owning this and and they already have safety safety infrastructures and this is the argument we keep making is like do you know how much you inconvenience people for like safety already like think about a festival and every time you re-enter you have to have like your entire bag checked you're not allowed to have water if it's open like you go through a metal like we go through so many steps to like mm -hmm. enter a space um, that are around other forms of safety. Um, and yet like this form of like very everyday violence, we're like, nah, it's fine. Like, don't yeah. worry about it. Like, we don't, eh, we don't need to have a policy for that or like any measures to try and like make sure our staff know how to deal with it. Cause the staff see it mm -hmm. and they, they're not happy about it, but they don't have skills to deal with like nope. someone reporting, you know, sexual assault to them. Like that is a terrifying thing as like, a minimum wage security guard who basically gets paid to be a doorway. Mm -hmm. um, like many of these security guards are placed on a door and that's their whole job and like what they're trained on. And then, but attendees don't know that. And so they ask for help because they're called security and you would yeah. think that they're there for your security. Um, and it's wild. So yeah, so we've been doing this work, but one of the places there's a group called event safety Alliance and they do, exactly that um it's well named <laughs> and, yeah. um but you know we presented um at their like annual conference last year which is lots of like venue owners and festival owners and and i think there is starting to be a little bit more like space and appetite for that work um in in venues and particularly in festivals which is 
it was like honestly just because one journalist at Teen Vogue wrote about it and then like all of a sudden festivals cared, which is great. Like I'll take it. Um, which is and- wild. The good work of Teen Vogue over the last few years. Yes! Like no joke. They've been like crushing it. It's amazing. Yeah. Teen Vogue is crushing the game, but they did. They wrote this article about like groping at Coachella and then Coachella hired an amazing team to like work on um, like anti-harassment programming and like resourced it and funded it. And, you know, we work with Bonnaroo. We were able to point to that and be like, look at this article, look at Coachella. Don't you also want to do this? And they're like, yes, we do. Right. Like it just like those things um, matter. And like that public pressure to do better um, is so helpful to <laughs> like to get people to agree to say like, yes, I'll do it. And yes, I'll resource it and sort of fund it. See, and that that's definitely something that's like kind of always kept me even honestly going to a lot of festivals because I think that they like, I've always just had a lot of preconceived notions of what people do at festivals. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, uh, I'm not, I, I gave up drinking years ago and I've never really been a drug person. And so like, I know that those are big concentrations there's a lot of concentration of those substances at festivals specifically and at gigs in general. Yeah. So like, I feel like anyone who works in an environment where alcohol is like, like expressly present mm-hmm. has to be trained in some of these things. Like when I worked at that bar, it was in my college town in Oregon. Um, I, cause I had already been doing this sort of work. Mm-hmm. I was like, Hey, can I just run everyone through like on a Saturday afternoon? Can I run everyone through, like a quick bystander training so that we at least understand what's going on. And so like Mm. we can call stuff out. And so after I did that, um, I I just felt really emboldened to to do that work with our security guards. I was like, Mm. like even like, I think it was like the next weekend we had a guy like groping a woman next to like the knockout punch game or whatever. And I was like, Hey, we grabbed one of our security guards right there. Remember what I told you (laughs) out of here. And like um, it was, really a very fascinating part of my life like being a bartender and the things that you see like I I get that from that end of the experience because there's only so much you can do from behind a bar and like luckily some bars have security like right next to you and luckily I did but like that's not always how it's going to be and that's not how it always is and so and not every um staff is going to be open to like coming and having these conversations because it also might make them uncomfortable, but it's still part of the work. Yeah, it really is. And so being on that end of it, I can totally empathize with the like minimum wage earning bartender at the gig because you don't sign up for that. And, but it ends up being part of your role to some degree. So it's like important to have, these sorts of outlets for folks to learn. And like, I, I literally just did a bystander training for my students like an hour ago. And so like, um, like doing that on my campus, like it's hard for um, students to want to like step into that space and learn um, something that can be pretty uncomfortable, but it's also like very emboldening emboldening yeah that's a word yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it emboldens people <laughs> to be able to feel like they can practice this and when they see it they can actually call it out or they can step in or they can distract they can do whatever they need to do mm-hmm. in that situation so that's why like I continue to do the work and so um because it's never easy to do it so mm-hmm. but nothing worth having is easy so yeah, yeah, that. that's a real. Yeah, I'm I'm reading um a book right now. It's called Hope in Dark Times, which feels appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, by Rebecca Solnit, and and one of the things I'm not that far into it, but in the beginning, she's sort of talking about like this framing of of hope and of social change, right? And that um very rarely like do we know when we're doing the work, like whether or not it's like who it's going to impact, how it will impact them, um, or sort of what like where that will go, but like the work is the work and it like all adds up to something. Right. And like, we just never know what's going to be like the spark that really moves things in a giant way. Um, But 
that spark isn't possible without so much, you know, so many individual bartenders deciding to train their like peers on, on how to intervene or someone telling their story to someone who like, ha who ends up having influence to change a whole policy um, or, you know, like an artist hearing a story and shouting that from stage and then a journalist covering it, right? Like there's just so many things that you didn't know that they were gonna happen that way. And, and so just like showing up and doing the work um, always matters, but you also don't know, it could go so much farther than you anticipate it going to. Yeah, and all it takes is just someone grabbing onto it and being like, I'm gonna write about this, I'm mm -hmm. going to cover this, or I'm yeah. going to run with this idea of accountability. Yeah. Like it just takes like one person um, to be able to do something like that. Or even like, I've seen videos of a couple bands like Circus Survive or even Architects stop their set mm -hmm. to be like, um, we just saw something that just happened or like the literal, literally the guitarist of Circus Survive got off stage while mid song and like handed his guitar to his tech, ran down, grabbed a security guard, pointed at the guy and was like, this just happened, get him out of here. And then like had a whole thing, like said a whole thing about what you just uh, witnessed and like people just being direct in that manner is like powerful mm -hmm. and like not everyone can do it. But for those who use their uh, abilities to do so, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's really powerful. Um, and it, yeah, and it just, it matters. And I think it's, um, you know, the more we see it, we'll, we'll hear these stories of, you know, someone who's like, oh, yeah, I went to your training a year ago. And then when I was at a show, I saw this and I just knew what to do, right? Like I went and found that person's friend and asked them to like go over with me and like check it out, right? That it was like, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't have to be rocket science. A lot of it is just about like being tuned in and feeling confident and like you have the skills, like you just know what to do when you see it. And I think that, um, yeah, that's, that's part of why we do so much work with people, like with music fans and not just with staff um, because it's, it is, this is culture change work, you know, it's like, yeah. yes, you need to do um, individually skill certain people up and like certain institutions, yes, should have policies. But at the end of the day, it's like, we all need to, to care enough to, to be that voice um, or to be that person who sort of steps in. And, and like, if you can do it directly, that's great. But I'm, I'm so indirect about this stuff all the time. Like if I'm just, if something just seems a little bit off, I'll just like immediately go over and ask where the bathroom is. Like the number of times mm -hmm. I've asked where a bathroom is, like, because it's just an easy way to interrupt a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're just like, that just seems off. I'm just like, hey, do either of you know where the bathroom is? Like, did you, like can you point yeah. me, whatever. There's like, and sometimes if it like seems, like like scarier than that i'll act extra drunk because it's like a little disarming if you're just yeah. like hi how are you <laughs> and like it's like so distracting yeah. um and those things like they feel silly and they feel sort of small but it's just such an easy way to just like get someone to safety if you're even the little bit like just a tiny notion that something might be off. There's a way to just insert yourself without making it a big deal. And I think those, those things, I'm starting to see more and more of people really like taking that on and feeling, yeah, empowered to just like listen to their gut and act in a way that, um, yeah, just like give someone the chance to get to safety if that's what they need. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's the one, one of the things that I always like talk about with like the distract part of like bystander intervention mm -hmm. just like be ridiculous like if you have it in you to be ridiculous be ridiculous mm -hmm. like um we uh like at a house party or whatnot we used to flicker lights a lot mm -hmm. just to like catch people off guard and then in those moments you can get another person to like do like a dance party like flick those lights and then like slowly ease someone away from <laughs> <Yeah>. the person <laughs> Like yeah. position your body, like to just move those people away without mm -hmm. any sort of contact. And we would yeah. even do that at the bars and whatnot. Like when we would go out drinking and dancing and stuff. So um, it's like pretty important work that can be done in a way that is not terribly confrontational. Yeah. Um, which I know that a lot of people don't want confrontation. Totally. It's like either like you personally are non-confrontational or is, especially if you don't know the person who's like sort of subjected to harassment in some way, mm -hmm. like 
they, there might be a reason that they don't want confrontation too. And mm -hmm. I think that's the part I try to hold on to because I think sometimes people are like, oh, direct is better. And it's like, direct might be better for you, but it's not always better for the people involved. And mm -hmm. until you like, unless you know that person in some way or like it is your job, right? Like if you are a security guard, like please be direct. <laughs> but yeah. if you're just like, you don't have to, you don't have to like dance someone away from someone else if you're a security guard. Um, like just, just tell them to leave. But, um, but yeah, that I think that sort of, um, yeah, like trying to just empathize with the person who's experiencing that form of harassment and, and saying like, what information do I have here? And if you don't have a ton of information, um, it's like get them to safety first before being direct. Um, it doesn't mean you can't then also be direct, but mm -hmm. um, if that would make the situation worse for them, or um, you, you, there's just some stuff that you don't know uh, as as a bystander, so you just have limited information. Um, and not that that should paralyze you, but I think that's that's part of part of the work is just really doing it from a place of empathy and not from a place of righteousness. And I think that mm -hmm. part is like. Um, it, you can feel the difference, right? When someone is going in because they care deeply about the person who's being impacted as opposed to like sort of like, you know, coming down in there, you know, as like as a white knight or, you know, whatever it is, or just yeah, being yeah. like, oh, this is wrong and we don't do this here as opposed to like, I care about you and I want you to be like, I want you to be safe. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that attitude also, I think compels people to act in a, in a really powerful way of like when you can tap into like care and empathy for like your friend, but also for a stranger. That's like a pretty powerful place to act from. All right. It's time for the music break portion of the podcast, bringing you a tune from the new VAR record, The Never Ending Year. The song is called Moments, and it is a fantastic opening track on this album. The album reminds me a whole lot of Sigur Rós, if you have ever listened to Sigur Rós, uh, and, and or uh, if you've listened to like Agent Fresco, bands from Iceland that make very beautiful music, have gushing, lush uh, instrumentals, and... Uh, incredibly beautiful vocals to accompany it. Uh, Iceland always has some very unique music that comes out of there. So I'm really glad that there's more getting exposed to the, uh, to the rest of the world. And I'm really glad that Spartan br wanted to share this album with the rest of us. Cause I believe it came out a little bit last year and it's getting a reissue right now. So if you like what you hear, go to spartanrecords.com and get yourself a vinyl copy, stream it anywhere uh, that you get music and support the bands and support the labels that's what we're doing right now that's what i'm demanding everyone to do uh but for right now i want you to just sit back relax and listen to moments from var
That was Moments by VAR. Go to SpartanRecords.com right now if you want to get a vinyl copy of that, if you want to get a CD of it, if you want to get yourself a digital copy, or if you just want to stream it anywhere you get streaming music, go do that. Support the band, support the labels. And for right now, let's finish this off, this conversation with Kim Warnick in the lightning round. I just ask you things you like in the world. So mm-hmm. I, I don't plan these to be hard. Okay. <laughs> But they are. <laughs> okay. Because there are things that you like. I don't yeah. know. Sometimes people have a, have a lot of opinions on the things yeah. they like. I get it. That's true. Um, so what's your favorite color? Purple. Nice. Uh, what is your favorite book or books that you're reading? Mm, I don't think I have a favorite, but um, I've been reading uh, Tomi Adeyemi's, like, uh, oh, I don't remember the name of the first one, but it's like Children of Blood and Bone. I think it's a really good, like, young adult fiction series I think I read it in like a day uh and then um yeah I'm I'm digging Rebecca Solnit's uh hope in dark times cool nice um what's your favorite type of food or even like a favorite place to eat I don't know Mm -hmm. Mm, well we can only eat at home but uh, (laughs) my kitchen (laughs) uh, my favorite kind of food is probably I think uh I really go to Thai food quite a bit Mm. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wish I could make it as good as I've gotten it in. Um, oh my gosh, where's that place? Somewhere in Cambridge. I forget what it's called. Uh, it's like right in Harvard, Harvard Square. It's in the back alley. I forget what it's oh, called. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, oh, I forget oh. its name. But um, I cannot make it. I cannot replicate it well on my own. It's a bummer. Same. Yeah, it's definitely something I eat out, not cook. Yeah, exactly. It's disappointing. Uh, yeah. What's your favorite place you've ever traveled? Mm, I lived, so I studied in Rwanda for four months, and there was like, uh, it's called Lake Kivu. It's like one of the most beautiful, serene places I've ever been to. I like, uh, yeah, it's probably my top place. That's cool. Yeah. In Rwanda. Yeah. Places. That's cool. Mm, yeah. Um, what about, uh, are you binging anything right now? Like TV or movies or anything? What are you Um, watching? Yeah, I, uh, just, I've been trying not to binge things. I'm actually like a little bit afraid in this, like living alone and being trapped that I'll just never stop. Yeah. (laughs) So I have, um, but I guess I've been binging some music maybe is like the the way that I've been doing it. So I've been listening uh, a lot to, uh, Ray Zaragoza. Um, and Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. and uh, and Lauren Hill. Nice. Yeah. Going to the Miseducation. Mm, I am. That's yeah. Top my top favorite album. So it's you know nice nice comfort in these times. Oh yeah, that is your top album. Mm-hmm. Because that's eventually what I get to in this. I, I'm I glad assumed, but I'm I'm getting. I was like, oh, there it is. I, I like know. it. Um, what about some newer stuff you're listening to? Anything new that you're really digging? Uh, I just listened to Fiona Apple's new album oh, already yeah. like three times. I really, <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was binging music. Um, yeah, I'm really loving it. It's so good. That's great. I haven't gotten yeah. a chance to listen to it yet, but I'm going to get on that. Yeah. Um, I recommend. Uh, oh, are you, so are you a podcast person? I actually am. I have not listened to a podcast in like weeks because I'm afraid of them, but I am a podcast person. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like to listen to? What do you suggest? Uh, I, so I really love um, Pod Save the People. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're so good. Um, and I've been listening to, oh, I have to remember what it's called. It's um, Alicia Garcia and um, Ajem Poo's new one, um, Sunstorm, I think <laughs> is what it's called. Um it's amazing. They're both like just incredible activists and um, have started this. I think they've just finished the first season. So those are my, my two favorites, I think. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Really great. I love the crooked media folks. So yeah, yeah they, they always churn out some good stuff. I'm really a big fan of keep it because mm-hmm. um, they're just so sassy. Yep. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not okay. So like, I'm pretty, into the things that I'm into Mm -hmm. like pop culture I miss out on like a whole swath of it so I go to the keep it podcast so that I can like at least grasp onto like some things that I don't I am just completely illiterate about so yeah I feel that way people keep asking me about like love is blind 
Yeah. And I was like, I can't, I tried, I got like 30 minutes in and I just like, it felt mean that I was making myself watch it. And like, I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not a snob about these things. Like I'll watch trash TV, but I was just like, I can't with some of these pop culture things. Like I don't get it. Um, yeah. Sorry. Love is blind lovers. Yeah. I've, I've talked to some people who enjoy it and I just, I couldn't do it. Same with like Tiger King. I haven't been able to touch that. I yeah. I, I don't do want it. that. It just also seems bad on it. Like people describe it to me and I was like, so like someone who like an abusive relationship, like killed their partner and now we hate her, but celebrate him. I, yeah. What? And I was like, tell me why I'm supposed to like this again. Okay. <laughs> why am I supposed to dig this? I don't know. I don't get it. Seems, seems just like normal shit. I don't really want to. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm imagining a lot of the like true crime stuff that's like, mcmillions which isn't like it's about um the the mcdonald's monopoly millionaire thing and Uh how like these this like group of people rigged it for a few years in the 90s and so like there's like this whole web of people that like won it because they were they were uh tied to this one specific person who was doing the rigging it's intense oh that's amazing all right, I'll watch that. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it's like every episode you're like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, sign me up for that. <laughs> yeah, and I've been I've been having a lot of heist dreams. Ooh. I don't know if you've been having weird dreams, but apparently it's a whole thing that people are having right now. Yeah, and, my dreams have been wild. Yeah. So many of mine involve heists, and I don't <laughs> get it. So I've been watching heist movies. <laughs> chicken or egg problem there but i like it (laughs) yeah exactly so i'm just like i just go to netflix and i added like eight heist movies to our list (laughs) yesterday my partner's just like why did you okay i get it you're great (laughs) um to wrap up do you have any final things or how can people get in touch with you or the organization and yeah uh, so to wrap things up yeah, the organization, you can find us at callingallcrows.org and at callingallcrows on all the, the socials. Um, crows like the bird. You're going to think it's counting all crows and you're going to be wrong. Um, <laughs> it is calling all crows. Uh, so that's where you can find us. And um, I'm at KY Warnick on Twitter and Instagram. Cool. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was great getting to chat with you. Yeah, same. All right, that was it. That was our conversation with Kim Warnick. I hope you enjoyed it. Please go to callingallcrows.org and learn more if you have any further questions. And if you want to reach out to Kim, please do so. Reach out to anyone on their team. I'm sure they would love to help you out and talk to you about whatever you have questions about. Uh, beyond that, I hope you also enjoyed the tunes from VAR uh, on this episode. Go to SpartanRecords.com. Get yourself uh, fully acquainted with all of the bands that Spartan is putting out, including this new record, which is called The NeverEnding Year. I'm going to play you out with a track called Run. It started this episode and it's going to end this episode as well. Uh, and after I mentioned Spartan Records, I'd like to do a segue into talking about Connect EDU Network. So go to connectedu.network and learn more about all of the higher education and educational content and podcasts that we put out every single week and every single day so that you can have a whole bunch of resources. That's what we're here for. That's what the network stands for and exists to do. So that's all I've got. I hope you're all doing well in the quarantine. We're doing okay. We're holding up and just hope that we get out of this somewhat soon. Who knows? But who who knows how long it's going to take? Uh, just want to make sure that we're all he- healthy and happy and taking care of each other. That's all I hope for. So, yeah, I'm going to uh, end the episode now, <laughs> I guess, instead of rambling further. But, yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode as you hear the rest of that song from VAR. And, yeah, I'll see you all next time. Until then, let's get to work. Bye.